Hello, everybody. This is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. And I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. So this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. So folks, today I want to introduce you to a good friend of mine, Don Theory, and he is a student along with me in the Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation graduate program, and and I'm uh, working on another degree um, in addictions and co-occurring disorders. And we met through this program, and he's a, a lot of fun, really good guy, and wanted to bring him on the program to talk about his thoughts on recovery and specifically the topic of uh, misperceptions that get in the way of pursuing recovery. And this is such an appropriate topic because uh, in my internship in the treatment center that I'm working at, you see a lot of patients that will come up with their own preconceived notions of what recovery is and probably more importantly, what it's not. And we have to spend a lot of time um, sort of getting them in, in the framework of uh, the models that do work. And we're going to talk about some of those things today. But Don and I had, had been talking about this subject, and I thought it was something that would benefit all of us in a discussion today. So with that, I want to introduce you to Don. So Don, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. Well, go ahead and tell us a bit about yourself and, you know, how you got to, you know, how did you get to Hazel and Betty Ford? What, you know, what brought you there and what do you plan to do and, and um, your thoughts on the misperceptions regarding recovery. Well, it's funny because when you ask uh, what brought me to Hazel and Betty Ford, I think about the first time I went to Hazel and Betty Ford, which was as a client, uh, not as a student. Um, and that was 17 years ago. It was my third uh, rehab experience, the first time that I did inpatient. And it was the culmination of eight years of, of attempting to put together some sobriety um, and it was the first one that, that worked and stuck. So it's been over 17 years since the first time or since the last time. Congrats. That's um, a big deal. I've, uh, well, thank you, sir. It, it is a big deal. And, uh, um, you know, so I, I experienced kind of the, the travails of, of the, the challenges of getting sober, even if you're a person who has some resources, even if you're a person who who acknowledges the issue and, and wants to get sober. And, and I did not have, uh, uh, you know, significant mental health challenges on top of my alcoholism. Um, so I was lucky in a lot of ways and I still had a hard time climbing out of the hole. Um, and since, uh, since emerging from Hazelden back in 2004, for whatever reason, it wasn't a, a, a really well thought out decision, but I, I, I was very open about the fact that I was sober and new in sobriety and had been to rehab and uh, to the point where I told first dates, I told people during job interviews and it was just kind of liberating. And I figured if it, if it didn't work out well uh, that I could, you know, relocate or just change my mind and stop being so open about it. Um, but the fact is even, even then, you know, I, I figured maybe one out of every four people or so would have a negative reaction. And honestly, in 17 years, I can't think of a single person that's had a noticeably negative reaction to my telling them that. And and by and large, almost always the reaction is the person who I tell about this, about being sober, tells me about somebody else they know who either got sober or didn't get sober or needs to get sober or whatnot. So being very open about it um, led to a lot of opportunities for me to try at least to help other people um, get the help that I got and learn the things that I learned. And, and it really opened up my eyes to uh, the challenges other people face that were, you know, the modifications and different from mine. Um, and, and the challenges that the people around the affected people face. So, you know, when I got to where I was helping parents and siblings and spouses and so forth, trying to get their, uh, loved ones uh, in in to get help um, is a real eye opener, and uh, and a lot of that is what led me to uh, leaving the elevator industry after a couple decades and and diving into this full time because uh, it was just so rewarding, um, both educational it helps me stay sober, uh, but also rewarding when you see the the success stories and how 
how happy and and healthy and hopeful uh, people can emerge on the other side to do cool stuff like uh, Mike Van Meter starting podcasts. <laughs> well, I don't know that I should be an example to anybody, but no, I agree with you. I know I appreciate it. And, and you're absolutely right. It's funny because I was so leery about telling people that are that were not already in recovery circles about my story. And I had the same experience that you did and that um, people very, very much to my surprise came out with their own stories of, let me tell you about my brother. Let me tell you about my wife. Let me tell you about my uncle. Let me tell you about so-and-so. And I really just wish that they had um, gotten sober. And a lot of times, sometimes people will then say, hey, look, you know, I think I have a problem myself. And and like you, Don, I've not had anybody that I'm aware of have a negative reaction towards me talking about sobriety. In fact, quite the opposite, quite the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the net net is pretty clear. And I, I really thought that maybe some people who had, you know, the rough childhood, you know, the, what I, what I was thought of as, you know, daddy used to drink, daddy used to hit mommy. I hate all alcoholics. I'm like, okay, I'm going to run into people that have that. And, uh, I, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. You know, and even the people who had that rough childhood and those horrible experiences, um, they loved that, uh, uh, anybody that's out there kind of fighting to, to help those kids and to help those parents uh, get out of it. So um, it's, it's been heartening. Uh, and I, I look forward to, I, I feel like the, the, the people struggling with mental health are a little behind uh, the people struggling with substance use disorders in terms of that sort of understanding and social acceptance. And I think it's trending in the right direction but you know, my, I suspect uh, that progress and that'll be measured in decades, like it was with uh, with alcohol and drugs. So it, it it'll be good that it's making up ground, but it it needs to make up a lot more because I think a lot of people still kind of stay in in quiet shame with uh, with the other you know depression, anxiety, bipolar, et cetera that that can uh, really debilitate people. Yeah, I completely agree. Completely agree. Now, um, you had mentioned misconceptions about recovery, and I think that's a phenomenal subject because I run into that quite a bit too. In fact, it's it's almost a given when I work with somebody either as a sponsor uh, in a 12-step program or they come to treatment that they have a completely skewed view of what recovery is. So talk to us a, bit, a little bit about that. What, what about misconceptions? What do you run into? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that there are some common um, topics that are either sincere obstacles uh, for people uh, pursuing recovery, and specifically AA, which is kind of the most well-known um, and accessible uh, resource for people trying to get sober. Um, and and there's also insincere obstacles, and that that sounds judgmental. So I'll I'll, end up, I'll admit to you kind of how I fell into that category myself. It's kind of a, a human nature game, but, um, you know, people who don't want to get sober, don't want to go to AA, will say it's a cult, will say it's a religious cult. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know what the technical definition of a cult is, but it's, you know, it's, it's no more culty than any other kind of club or church or anything that people go and it helps them and, and they support each other. Um, and some people end up uh, embracing it with a level of fervor and with a specificity of how they like it, that it can turn other people off. Um, you know, the, the AA, I, I get, I feel at some point where I'm getting a little blasphemous because, you know, I love AA and it's played a big part in what saved my life. Um, but, you know, the, the U.S. Constitution has been amended a couple dozen times and there are, there are things in AA from a marketing perspective that I think uh, uh, scares some people off. And so um, the concept of, you know, the higher power and you get to decide what your higher power is. Uh, and it's a topic of AA meetings all the time. You know, I've been to thousands of AA meetings. I've been to more than a hundred different AA meetings. You will hear you know, thousands of different takes on on what sort of flexibility people have for what their higher power can be if you are agnostic or if you are atheist. But the fact of the matter is, 
for the people who have really um, malignant relationships with religion based, you know, love most people that I know it's based on kind of their childhood and, and negative experiences with it when they were, when they were children, they're still going to hear the word God a lot. And the founders of AA and the big book says God a lot, and they were very religious and it's not uncommon for AA meetings to close with the Lord's prayer. Um, and so if, you know, I'm agnostic and so, you know, I'm proof that you can go to AA meetings for 17 years and stay sober and that hearing a bunch of other people who may be, you know, Christian and, and may, that may be a significant portion of their sobriety and their AA experience. Um, but you need to be able to let them accept the part of the program that's working for them and let the other parts of it slide off your back. So, you know, one of the, the only sign I think that I've ever seen that's kind of a common sign at AA meetings that drives me nuts is a sign that it says, don't work my program, don't work your program, work the program. And the fact of the matter is in, in this uh, insufficiently humble alcoholics opinion, um, there isn't the program. You know, there, there's a, you know, work the steps and go to meetings and all that good stuff. But nowhere in the big book does it tell me how many meetings I should go to per week. Nowhere in the big book does it tell me whether or not I should be okay with my wife having alcohol in the house or if I should take painkillers after a surgery or if I should, you know, have desserts that had alcohol cooked into it, but the alcohol burnt, blah, blah, blah. There's a million different little decisions that we make. Um, for how careful we do or don't want to be. And and every alcoholic kind of decides how careful they want to be. And so it, it's tailor-made. And my program uh, involves letting people who are religious incorporate that into their program and, and for me to not get worked up about it or offended by it or to let it get in the way of my program. But a lot of other people do. And I, I'm, I'm rambling, but just to put a point on something that I thought I, I said earlier that I would circle back to the intentional uh, excuses that we make uh, to help us uh, justify or rationalize not getting sober or not engaging fully with AA. You know, I, I did a half semester of, uh, of drunken night law school back uh, in my drinking days. And, and that sort of legal mindset is something that, that I used against myself during those eight years when I was trying to get sober, because in the preamble that's read before pretty much every AA meeting, one of the things that they say is all that's necessary uh, to be a member of AA is a desire to quit drinking. And every time I heard that, what I thought to myself was, I don't belong here because I don't want to quit drinking. I want the bad stuff to stop happening. You know, I was a social drinker. I was having a, I was having a pretty darn good time. It was the hangovers. It was the missing work. It was the debt, um, you know, the, the, the physical illness and the shame involved and not, not uh, progressing in my career, et cetera. That was the stuff that bugged me. Um, and that was a loophole that I used to, to relapse and, and to, you know, not go to AA at times and to leave meetings. Um, and so there are these little kind of opportunities that we give people who are struggling uh, you know, in school, we'll call it the pre-contemplative stage, Mike, but where, you know, people still in denial, you know, where I was for a good long time, who are looking for an excuse to stay there. And AA, from a marketing perspective, still hands them some. And so uh, when I'm talking at meetings and I hear, you know, newcomers that are hearing things that are likely, you know, perhaps more likely to turn them off than to turn them on. Um, or even in you know, my internship now with school, I really try to, to beat the drum on uh, the flexibility that AA allows. And if you don't like a meeting, don't go to it anymore and go to a different one. And if you don't like your sponsor, fire your sponsor and get a different one or get another one because you can have five sponsors if you want. And we can, you know, I've fired two higher powers and there's no religion that'll let you do that, but I'm on my third higher power in my 17 years. And I think that's pretty cool. And uh, I think from a marketing perspective, that's a much easier sell um, than this is the way I, I got sober. This is the only way that I will ever kind of endorse any newcomer um, getting sober who might be thinking about 
you know, attending some meetings. Yeah, very well said. And I completely agree with you. You know, it does seem to have, when you first go in, it seems to have a cultish aspect, but I, I agree with you that it can be a turnoff for a lot of people, but it's because, again, they don't, A, don't understand, or B, aren't ready to get there. And I often tell people, too, that as, a, as people, we actually don't have a problem worshiping something. And, and bear with me for a second as I explain this. What I say to people is that, in reality, you were worshiping something, you were worshiping the bottle. In our, right now, we're talking about alcohol. Um, so in this case, alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be pornography. It could be gambling. It could be anything. Because if you think about it, um, alcohol, if, if you're, we're talking in an AA meeting here, you were worshiping the bottle. You really were. It, it was your God. It told you when to get up, when to go to bed, when to go to work, where to work, if you were going to work, what airplane you were going to take, if you were going to take an airplane, where you traveled to, who you traveled with. If you think about it, uh, it, it, dominated every aspect of your life and so what happens is a lot of times people come into recovery and that becomes replaced with something else which is now meetings and sponsors and aa and it sort of takes on that ad aspect with some people not all people but for some people but the nice thing is that they're not drinking um i've not met anybody that's lost a job because they go to too many AA meetings or they're too enthusiastic about their sobriety. I've not met that person yet. Uh, but it does take all different types of shapes and forms in, in people. And, and you're right, Don, that uh, nobody really tells you what that should look like. And there are some people uh, th that you will, because people are people, there are people that, that say, this is exactly the way that you do it, and this is my program, and you will do it exactly the, the way that I tell you, or else that's not really recovery. But I think it's important to understand enough about tw the 12-step programs, and AA in particular, and understand what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate because when i meet those people now i just okay well that's that's his program and it works for him but that's not what works for me um the challenge is getting people to not get turned off so much that they just stop participating and stop trying um what do you think about that i i agree that the word worshiping uh when you started i found interesting yeah um, <laughs> just because my yeah, my, my higher power now, I, I used to, when I was in meetings, give a really long kind of description for what my what my current higher power was uh, in a way to try to um, to try to help newcomers that were struggling with what, you know, since it's an early step that you have to kind of adopt a higher power um, and it's hard to get past that, that that I would always make a point of kind of trying to explain the flexibility uh, that that existed. And then as I was explaining it to a, a client and in my internship, I realized that I could shorten up my whole explanation and just say that really my higher power right now is my recovery plan. I believe that my recovery plan of attending meetings and, and uh, learning about different wisdom traditions and engaging in getting this degree and doing philanthropic work to try to help people in recovery, um, these things are my recovery plan. Uh, and I, I trust that my plan will work. Uh, and, and so that, that's where my faith is. So I was trying to wrap my, my head around worshiping, uh, my recovery plan versus just kind of trusting it and, and dialing it up, you know, as needed. Uh, I had a, a kind of a, a, a very minor, uh, relapse nine years ago, uh, you know, a couple glasses of wine in Paris and it was, you know, didn't get drunk. There was no drama. It was, you know, not long lasting or anything. And, and just decided that I had to tweak uh, up my recovery plan. And so I did. So more meetings and more commitments and no more boozy desserts and, uh, uh, you know, no more occasional NA beers. Um, and, and so it's just kind of faith in, in what I've learned, uh, both through AA and through a bunch of other things uh and and putting it into practice so i don't know that i worship my plan but i i trust it a lot and i talk to people about it a lot and i modify it a lot to, uh, to try to stand as far away from the fire uh as as i can so I, it, it might be i think we might be saying kind of the same thing but, but coming at it from different angles yeah and what i meant by worship is 
really alcohol. I think more in the sense of when when I was drinking, it, it drinking became. I mean, it was my central thought from the time I got up to the time I went to bed, and kind of dictated my behavior in between. And, and to me, that that borders on on worship. Now, when you when you get into recovery, it's it's not so much that I, I guess what I'm getting at is that there are people that it comes across that way. It looks they just get so involved in 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 their recovery program that it gives that appearance. But like you had mentioned, though, there, there's something about recovery that is individual. You know, to me, just this is just Mike's observation over time. There are certain principles in recovery that are universal principles, but how we execute those principles are very individualistic and it looks different in different people. If, if that makes sense for some people, sure. they have to be all in and almost, almost like, you know, the, you know, a religious fanatic where that that's all they talk about. They're always quoting things. They're always, you know, do it, you know, <clears throat> their practices are uh, constant, you know, there are people that need to do that. And then there, there are other people that shoot, you would, unless they told you outright, you wouldn't even know that they were in recovery because they've adopted those principles, uh, and it, it looks different in their in their life. They don't need to talk about it all the time. They don't need to go to meetings every single day. They don't need to read the literature, you know, so many times a day, you know. But again, you do have, you know, I know people that get up the first thing in the morning is they do their meditation, they do their devotional, they read something out of the Big Book or the Twelve and Twelve or some other, uh, whatever other program they're in, and then they go to meeting at noon, and then they go to the meeting in the evening, and and they're on the phone with their sponsor, and that's great if it, if that's what's keeping them sober, that's fantastic, and I'm not to criticize that because it that formula works for that person um that's not necessarily the formula that i have to adopt and maybe you don't have to adopt but i'm not going to criticize what another person does in their recovery um but i do think that there are sometimes there are people that will tell a newcomer this is what you must do to get sober and that's incorrect Uh, would you agree with that? That's that's not that's not that's not does not mean that you have to do exactly what I do to stay sober. Um, it you may are. look now there are certain principles that I think that one must need to, must must understand about recovery and about the disease model of addiction. But how that manifests manifests itself may look different in you than in me. Yeah, but you touched on one on one big thing and you also reminded me of kind of a fun story but a big thing that i explain to people a lot both people who are trying to get sober and people who are trying to understand you know other people who are trying or who need to get sober is that alcohol use disorder substance use disorder this it's not like covid you know where you get a test and you're positive or negative you have it or you don't um, you know, it's, uh, you know, even talking to friends and family who asked me about it, I say it's on a score of zero to a hundred, you know, and I don't, I don't know what my score is, but, you know, I know people who had scores higher than mine based on stories I've heard at, at meetings and, and in treatment centers. And I know people who have very, very low scores. I mean, I, I tease my wife all the time uh, as being a great example to me of what I was not as a drinker, because she will often you know, pour a glass of wine and walk away and forget to ever drink it. Which, yeah, exactly. I never had that and problem. So it, exactly. So <laughs> she's near the zero end of the spectrum. And and I was a little different than that. Uh, you know, I was at the guy who would walk out in the parking lot from the dive beer, throw up, and then walk back in the bar and, and you know, drink for several more hours. So that's that's closer to the hundred end of the spectrum. But, um, you know, certainly I've heard worse stories than mine. And, and if somebody, but, 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 if a couple at the table next to her, he got, got up and walked away and they left half empty beers or wine, you would drink it. <laughs> you, you stare at them. Yeah. And, oh. and so, and, and so different people, you know, even just based on that, even if you left out every other you know thing that colors somebody's decisions for what their program is going to look like, like the religion thing we talked about, um, you know, somebody who is, is more, you know, I was not a person who grabbed a bottle of vodka and chugged vodka straight, you know, by the pint that that wasn't me. Uh, some people were right. And so what sort how strong, how stringent, how desperate uh, a program of recovery needs to be, I think changes by the person. And then the other question that, that I ask people is, you know, are you looking to craft a recovery program for yourself that does just barely enough to keep you sober? 
but you don't want to do any more than what you need to. So, you know, God forbid you go to one more meeting per week than, than you think you absolutely need. Uh, or, you know, talk to more newcomers or work the steps more stringently uh, because, you know, you have all these other priorities. And so, therefore, you are going to stand, you know, quite, just right on the ledge of the cliff. You know, if, I'm, if I'm at the Grand Canyon and I'm near a cliff, I'm not going to stand within 10 feet of, of a ledge. I'm just not going to. And if I'm standing 10 feet away, Mike, and you come up behind me and you shake me by the shoulders, I'm going to kill you. I, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to be very, very upset with you because I'm whatever. I'm somewhat afraid of heights, right? I don't want to stand right on the ledge. I certainly don't want to jog on the ledge or sit on the ledge, but some people do. And, and so as you get more desperate to stay sober, you are willing to do more and more to be as safe as you can possibly be. I want the airbag and the seatbelt and to drive at a reasonable speed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and different people are standing on different height cliffs. You know, some people get sober at 16, 17 before they ever drink just because they saw what their parents were like. You know, that's, that's amazing because they don't even know how they would have drank if they started. So that's, you know, it's just, there, there's a lot of choice involved uh, in how, um, how, how, badly we need to get sober, how badly we want to get sober, and what we're willing to do to get stay sober. The story I was going to tell you that I think is kind of funny, um, you know, again, I, I mentioned I'm a bit of an AA meeting tourist, and I've been to over 100 different meetings, and one that I tell people about a lot is up in Vancouver, Washington, and I was walking to this meeting, and it was back in a parking lot a little bit off the main road, and uh, and a kind of a, a rough looking uh, young man, you know, walked out and met me about 50 feet away from the from the entrance. And he was kind of bald, and neck tattoos, and the whole thing. And and he said, you know, are you here for the meeting? And I said, yes, I am. And it's not common to be kind of greeted in this way outside of a meeting. And he said, have you ever been here before? And I said, no, I've not. And he said, well, here's the deal: uh, don't speak unless you're called upon. You, know, you raise your hand, waiting to be called upon. Um, and since you've never been here before, you will not be called upon. So, so <laughs> welcome sit to the and, Yeah, sit and do not speak. He said, uh, uh, don't, don't extend your legs because we don't want people to trip. They walk past you. And don't look at our women. And, and I, was, I was hooked, right? I mean, I've, I've, kind of, you know, I've been at 90-something meetings probably before this. I'm like, this is going to be the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I go in, and it turns out I did get called upon. Um, but this was uh, a little house that had been bought by an ex-con, and he was running AA meetings for ex-cons who didn't want to go back to prison. And so these were serious, you know, desperate, death grip, very, you know, no kidding around this is how we're going to do it. They ran a very stringent program, a very specific program um, that was for this group of people that was just desperate to not go back into prison. And, and I get it, right? I mean, it wasn't my experience. It wasn't a meeting I'd ever go back to. I went to a different local meeting the next day. And as soon as I started this story, they were all like, oh, we know where you went. And they were all laughing. But, you know, these people had been through some stuff. And, and in terms of the experience of their alcohol or drug use and or their prison experience, these people wanted to stand very far away from the ledge, I guess, to circle back to my previous metaphor. And they were going to countenance no nonsense for anybody who was only halfway invested in the project. And the meeting is probably the worst thing ever for a non-ex-convict newcomer to go to for their first AA experience. And my guess is it scared away a lot of people uh, that would never go to AA again. But for the very specific crowd that they were targeting, uh, probably a godsend. You know, probably just a wonderful, wonderful resource of people who knew their experience and were going to uh, be completely invested in helping them uh, get their get their lives together. Yeah, that, that's 
Well, let's talk about that on the other side here a little bit. Um, let me do a little plug for our sponsor because uh, you just raised some very, very interesting points. So uh, let me just go through this here real quick. Uh, this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, and FHE Health has been providing life-changing behavioral health services for more than 20 years. They treat substance abuse and mental health disorders in an individualized and comprehensive approach. Recognizing the specialized treatment needs of the first responder community, they've created Shatterproof, a dedicated program for law enforcement, fire rescue, and similar communities to receive treatment among peers. They're, they're experienced in providing privacy and working with unions for employment, and FHE Health is committed to providing the best care experience for patients, for their families, and for our communities. So learn more at FHEHealth.com. So you raise a, a really interesting point, Don, and that is... Um, you talk about people that need, absolutely need to get sober, right? Yep. The, the present population and how those people were just almost boot campish serious about their recovery. And I've, I've experienced similar type of things and you are correct. It can be such a turnoff. If that, if that happened to be the first meeting that you walked into, that would be really kind of a, a showstopper for a lot of people. And that's why it's important to emphasize to people that are coming in, go to a lot of different meetings. Cause there are, there are a lot of different types of meetings out there. In fact, at the treatment center that I'm working at uh, right now, interning at, um, I, I try to do a lot of teaching to the, the patients about the different types of meetings that are out there. And a lot of people don't understand that there's open meetings, closed meetings, um, specialized meetings, professional meetings, men's meetings, women's meetings, LGBTQ meetings, and uh, on and on and on, all kinds of different groups. And uh, the formats, whether it's big book, 12-step, speakers meetings. And a lot of people don't realize the very variety of meetings that, that are out there and that you should go to meetings and experience a lot of these, these different um setups and then find out you know what works for you but it is important for people to understand but i will what i was going to share with you don is when i first came into the rooms of recovery um people like that were a big turnoff for me you know the you know the old school aa person that is like shut up don't talk. If I want to learn how to get drunk, I'll talk to you. You want to learn how to get sober, you'll listen to me. Take the cotton out of your ears and put it, you know, put it in your mouth. You yep. know, those kind. Of, and I didn't like. If you have less than ten years of sobriety, do not speak at this. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, you you run into that kind of stuff. I didn't like it in the beginning. I I have to confess to you, Don, that over the years I'm starting to appreciate some of the stuff that I've seen over the years. I'm starting to kind of appreciate those guys. Oh <laughs> really no. Am. But don't um, let it happen, Mike. No, no, well, no. I, I, here's what I'm getting at: is that over time you kind of change and you see. Well, no, I guess what I'm getting at is I've seen I see how different people work and what works for different people. And I understand that there's people that that works for, but I understand that there's people that that doesn't work for. But I've been around long enough, and and I would like to think that my sobriety is strong enough to where my personal recovery is not affected by somebody like that. Uh, you know what I mean? It's not, it doesn't bother me now to see people that are that way, but I do understand why that's damaging in the, to the newcomer coming in. So what do you think of that? No, it, absolutely. I think, and, and I think it's, it's passion that, that comes from a good place. You know, that this, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, most people uh, have stories similar to to mine, which is, you know, they didn't the same day that they decided that that they probably needed to quit drinking. They went to their first AA meeting and it, it sunk in right away and they never drank again or they never used drugs again. Uh, the next time I hear that story will probably be the first. You know, I've, I've heard the story of the people that never drank because because their experience with their parents. I don't think I've ever heard the story of the person who the first time it occurred to them, they should stop, you know, that, that they did, uh, you know, with the help of a meeting. You know, I've, I've heard of some people who, who just kind of decided on their own that they shouldn't drink anymore. And honestly, I suspect those people were towards the lower end of that spectrum of, of alcoholism that I was talking about before. I couldn't prove it because there's no real test to go with it, but most people have to go to treatment multiple times. Most people go in and out of AA meetings uh, for a long time. And, and so this is why uh, it's become a little bit of my mission. You know, I'm, I'm, 
I called you to volunteer to, 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 to talk to you on your podcast, partly because, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a egotistical guy who likes the sound of his own voice. And so when I go to AA meetings, I try to not talk. You know, my, I think it's important for me to try to be a better person, to try to be a better listener and to actually pay attention to what other people say. And so I usually will only speak in a meeting if there's kind of one of those little uncomfortable silent periods that happens in AA meetings uh, sometimes, or if it seems to me that a newcomer is getting uh, an excessively rigid variety of um, or representation of AA pounded towards them. And that I, I fear that some newcomer is going to be turned off based on some rigid interpretation of what AA must be. And that's the only time that I'll really kind of make a point of diving in and either sharing during the meeting or pulling somebody aside after the meeting to say, hey, you know, you know there are a lot of people that agree with whatever that guy or, or those people were saying. There's also a lot of other people who do it this way. And, uh, you know, so keep keep looking. Don't don't give up on the whole concept um, based on that uh, that little subset. Um, and I think it's important. But, you know, people people find what worked for them and it saved their life and they want to share it. And so I, I get the passion um, and I get why they think that that's the magic recipe, because if you veer too far from the AA magic recipe, then, you know, that there certainly could be an argument to be made that if somebody were to take um, my point uh, to an extreme end, uh, that, you know, you're not really talking about a recovery program anymore. Um, and so you touched on it before. The, you know, there are key principles, there are key concepts as to what what AA is about that are really important to embrace. Um, and so, you know, like so many things in life, it's just trying to find the happy medium of of uh, getting everything that works and throwing out everything that doesn't, and uh, trying to maximize the number of the number of people that that can be brought into the fold of. AA or smart recovery or treatment in general or it, you know any of these different recovery concepts and practices that that help people deal with um, these problems that are affecting so many millions of people. Yeah. Well, it, you know, we obviously you and I are people that practice the AA principles, but you know, but you and I do work uh, in the in the treatment field in in our internship. What about the person that comes to you and says, uh, "I want nothing to do with AA." Um, you know, don't, don't talk to me about that. I, I want to learn about something else. How, how do you approach that? And, um, you know, for the listeners it's, out there, what, you know, what, what sort of advice do you have for that? It's tough, uh, because I have experience with a client like that, who is, um, uh, who was, you know, very atheist and very anti AA. Uh, and so I just tried to get straight to the principles of, you know, changing uh, coping skills of, of being self-aware of uh, the way that, that, that we process life and life's challenges and developing uh, self-regulation skills to, to deal with challenges better than we did before. And I, you know, my, my opinion or my impression is that there's a massive amount of overlap between AA Christianity, Stoicism, Buddhism, some of the psychotherapies that we're studying at Hazelden, you know, there's a lot of focus on uh, mindfulness and on, uh, you know, cognitive behavior and just, you know, as opposed to, you know, people go to anger management course and instead of getting angry and reacting and breaking something or getting angry and hitting somebody to instead get angry, notice that you're angry have some, you know, anger management skills that you've learned, whether it's a breathing or counting or, or, you know, taking a walk or exercising or whatever it is to manage your emotions. So you still get to feel them, but just noticing them and managing them in a more productive way. You know, I, I, I dealt a lot with uh, self-pity when I was, when I was drinking a lot. And I thought that drinking was romantic. You know, so if I went to the bar and felt bad for myself and watched the booze bounce around in the ice cubes or did shots and kind of punished myself with Jägermeister, you know, I saw some romance in that um, at the time. And so kind of learning the, uh, the aspect of that that's, that's nonsense and learning 
uh, accountability for my own life, <clears throat> learning my part in, in problems that I had with other people and acknowledging that, um, that there's just a lot of overlap and you don't, you don't need to learn it from the Christian Bible. You don't need to learn it from the AA big book. So like with the, uh, the, the guy I was talking about before, who was the atheist, who's uh, reluctant to, you know, resistant to AA. I gave him a book of, of Stoic readings. Um, so, you, you know, reading ancient Roman philosophers, and, you know, more current Stoic uh, uh, practitioners, and you're learning a bunch of the same stuff, you know, and, and for, you know, he loved the fact that uh, uh, Bill Belichick, coach of the Patriots, was, you know, one of these guys who follows Stoic wisdom and was into it. And so he's getting quotes uh, because he'd rather read them from Bill Belichick instead of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, and that's great. You know, I mean, it was, so it's whatever works and, and letting people know that there's a lot of that out there, um, that there's a ton of overlap between the different practices that people learn to cope with different types of problems. Yeah. And I, what, what I like is, and I don't know how you approach, how you approach this question with patients is first and foremost is the questions that you're asking, right? And I, I mean, the questions from a, from a patient or, you know, somebody, if you're in a sponsorship type situation is differentiate, differ, differentiating between an actual question because you're curious about this or you have a different approach and maybe you're just someone that, that really is not ready to get sober in the first place and, and kind of sorting that out. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, there's a there's a natural when, curiosity, when say, and then there's just you're trying to find reasons to not get sober. There's exactly right. So when you say that, you you make me think of you know before when I'm talking about the excuses, you're looking for your loophole, you're looking for your rationalization as to why, you know, that treatment wouldn't help. And you know, the the the, the guy I was referencing, that the irony there is that you know I'm working at a facility that is a religious facility that openly. Uh, is a 12-step practitioner program. And and so, you know, this individual checked into a place that's a religious facility that, that treats people with 12-step program. And this person is kind of surprised that uh, that the curriculum isn't lining up with, <laughs> with, with what they uh, wanted or expected. Um, but again, it's, so it, it's a, it's a plan that's designed to fail. And that's part of the, um, nefariousness of, of the disease. You know, we, we become our own enemy, uh, in that, you know, that the part of our brain that wants to be happy and healthy is fighting against the part of our brain that, uh, that isn't ready for that, that isn't capable of it, hasn't, hasn't grown in that way. And that we've trained to medicate feelings, et cetera, uh, uh with the unhealthy substances. Yeah. Very well said. And I, you know, I've, I've run into that as well because the treatment facility I'm at has that, uh, there are some basic religious overtones that are there and there are people that come in and they seem surprised when we start talking about spiritual matters. Like, why are you talking about spiritual matters? And, uh, you know, people just, I don't know if they just <laughs> picked, you know, uh, how they, how they picked that particular facility to go to, but you're, you know, it's, it's one of those things. But if you're listening to this program right now and you're somebody that's struggling, I think that first and foremost, as Don pointed out is, you know, do you really want to get sober? If, if that's, if that's what you want to do, then no problem at all asking, you know, questions because we have a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions when I came in to recovery, but what is your purpose for asking those questions? Are you trying to find that loophole is, as Don points out that you're trying to find that one reason why you shouldn't get sober, or you're trying to prove that you're that one person that doesn't really need this program. Um, you know, ask that of yourself and then have, have that honest conver conversation because that's going to be very important. You know, we often say that recovery is not for people that need it. It's for, it's for people that want it. And there's a difference um, you know, you, you have to get to the point to where you want to get well. And I've, I've often said, Don, and, and we'll kind of close out on this and your, your thoughts on this, that, that I've often thought that if you ended up in detox or if you've ended up in a 28 day, 90 day, 180 day program, anything like that, um, uh, you need to be in recovery. You know, you, you don't end up in a treatment facility by, it was, <laughs> wait a minute, this was an administrative mistake. Uh, you got the wrong guy. This is not, 
for me. Uh, I think that by the time you end up there, um, you, maybe you should have been there for quite some time. And, you know, you can try to convince yourself otherwise, but you probably need to be in recovery if you've ended up in that position. So, um, you know, let's, I always tell people, and I try not to be overly harsh with this, but like, I think you settled the debate there. <laughs> the fact that you're here, <laughs> yeah, you should maybe not drink anymore or drug anymore. It's probably not working out for you too well, you know. The, the odds are certainly low. You know, I, I've, I've met several people who've gone specifically just to pacify certain people in their life who were requiring it. And, and the denial was still strong in them. And they were just going to do their 28 days or whatever to, to check the box to, you know, quote unquote, make so-and-so happy. Um, you know, but yeah, both the people I'm thinking of when I discussed this uh, had had seizures and had been you know, taken to hospitals. So uh, certainly would not be uh, any sort of exception to your proposed rule. Um, I, 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 I try to stay away from, you know, always and never and everybody and so forth. So that, that, you know, that there might be the occasional uh, loved one who, who jumps the gun and, and tries to send somebody someplace, uh, you know, maybe before it was needed, but super duper rare. And quite frankly, everything I know of that, that we learn um, because of the nature of this disease, you know, so somebody with diabetes needs to learn how to have a different diet. Mm -hmm. Somebody yeah. with substance use disorder needs to learn how to have above average coping skills, not average coping skills. You know, we start with below average coping skills, but we need to learn how to have better than average coping skills in order to resist our drug or drugs of choice. Having good coping skills is a valuable thing for everybody. You know, I mean, I suspect a, a diabetic diet is probably a pretty good thing for everybody too, in terms of avoiding sugar and losing weight and so forth. But so even if you're not an alcoholic or you're not a drug addict and you find yourself in treatment, there's some good stuff to learn there. You know, cause we're learning coping skills. We're learning about about what these diseases are, but we're also learning um, mental exercises and strategies that make us stronger to help us deal with whatever life's going to throw at us tomorrow, uh, because we need to be good at it. Um, or, you know, my, my knee jerk reaction, if, if I start having a whole bunch of bad luck, um, you know, today and tomorrow and everything seems a shambles, my body is going to tell me that, you know, I should just, punish myself with alcohol to cope with it. And I've learned a lot over the last 17 years to teach me how to cope with it differently. And to the point where, you know, my body really doesn't even, my brain doesn't go there very quickly anymore. Um, extremely rarely, but that takes a long time. And yeah. so people new in sobriety need to, need to develop those muscles. Yeah, and there's there's the physiological aspect and the neurological aspect to it as well, where I think your brain just sort of reshapes itself, uh, you know, not only just yep. mentally, but, but actual physically. I think our, our bodies and our brains just kind of like remold and reshape because I'm, I'm like you at, at, at this point, knock on wood, uh, when I have a bad day, my first thought is not to go have a drink anymore. Now, it took a long time to get there, and I'm not going to say that there aren't those days where uh, that doesn't sound like a good idea, but it's fleeting. I, I think it's it's less often and less intense, much more fleeting now than it used to be. Sure, but it took a long sure. time. Yep. Yeah, me, me too. I uh, you know probably once or twice a year I'll wake up in the morning and think you know it'll be like a Tuesday or something, and I'll think today would be a good day to go to a dive bar and put twenty dollars in the jukebox and you know listen to loud music in the morning and and. So on those days, I call my my buddies from Hazelden uh, when I went there, and other AA buddies, and I I still play loud music. Uh, I just you know wait for that little impulse to to pass, and I go to work anyway. And you know within a couple hours, I've forgotten that I ever felt that way. And uh, it doesn't happen, like you say, it, it doesn't happen very often. That's an excuse to listen to loud music. So you know, <laughs> that's, that's right. All, that, it's that's kind of interesting that you do it because I do the same thing. Uh, one thing I've noticed is uh, people in recovery, I meet a lot of people that are very much into music and art and, and recovery. Uh, a lot of people. 
So it seems yeah. to be a kind of a common theme as well. I don't know that for those of you that are thinking about working on a PhD thesis, maybe that's a thesis project for you. Why? <laughs> why is that? I don't know. <laughs> I, I am just in case you were looking for a, a PhD thesis. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> well, well, we'll leave that to somebody else. I'm definitely not thinking about a PhD thesis. No, no, I think I'll be done for a while. <laughs> oh man! But Don, hey, any parting thoughts? Just, to, just, just to take us out on this podcast. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. Yeah, I, I think I'll, uh, I'll, you know, there's there was a, a topic that I thought we might start with that uh, that we didn't even get to, and so I'll just I'll just leave the whole concept of anonymity until uh, until the next time you're you're bored enough to want to talk to me. You know what? So, uh, I think that we would because that is a very very good topic, and let's do that. Let's let's do if you'll come back onto the show, I'd love to have you back on the show and let's talk about that. My pleasure. Absolutely. Well, Don, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health. According to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. So FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. So find out more at FHEHealth.com. And so as always, I'd like to say, you know, I don't represent any group and neither does Don, but we do talk about different groups. Obviously, we, we talked about some groups today, but we don't represent them. Nobody represents these groups. We're just giving you our thoughts and our opinions uh, about these groups, and, and hopefully that will help you because uh, that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way while we're trying to impart knowledge that we've gained to help others as well. But if we've said something that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, then just discard it. But try to take any information that you can use for yourself and use it to help yourself and others as well. And with that, please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com, and let me know how I'm doing. And let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing about, because I know you're going to want to hear about Don's opinion on anonymity, because that's a, a, a subject that comes up quite a bit. But I'd love to hear from you. So take care, guys, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>